The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. It's good to be before you this morning. Um, Michael is preaching at All Souls EPC Church in Nashville this morning. Uh, it's one of our sister churches in Nashville and um, Kirk Ackeson is the church planner. His wife, Deb, has um, been struggling with cancer and I think just took her last chemo treatment this week and uh, just asked. Uh, Rachel and I went uh, a few weeks ago and uh, today Michael and Serena and little MJ are there and uh, that's how the church should be, just encouraging one another and giving up for one another and uh, I just pray that Michael's time there is uh, beneficial. Uh, this morning, I continue the series that we've been working through on the essentials of the faith for our denomination. It's um, important that we understand the doctrinal realities that should unite us as a church, those things that are essential if we are going to be a radically new community, uh, radically loving God and neighbor. And that doesn't just happen. It doesn't happen by throwing doctrine away. It happens by believing specific things that are the core tenets of the Scripture's teaching. And so this morning we look at the fifth essential of our faith. And let me just read it. The true church is composed of all persons who through saving faith in Jesus Christ and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit are united together in the body of Christ. The church finds her visible yet imperfect expression in local congregations where the word of God is preached in its purity, the sacraments are administered in their integrity, where scriptural discipline is practiced and where loving fellowship is maintained. For her perfecting, she awaits the return of her Lord. So this morning, uh, we're looking at 1 Peter chapter 2 to flesh many of these themes out. So before we do that, let's ask God's blessing upon our time. Father, we need you this morning to come by your Spirit. Lord, we need an awakening of what you're doing in your church. Oh God, the church has experienced tremendous imperfection. But it has through the ages, and yet you... Though your bride has cheated in so many ways, have been so faithful. So this morning I pray that you would give us a real understanding of who you are building us to be. Lord, I pray that you would help us to think new thoughts about your church, to see something different that might make our hearts more in love with what you're doing to create this body of Christ in the midst of this world. Holy Spirit, come powerfully. Give us a great love for Jesus. Oh, Father, meet our skepticism, meet our unbelief, meet our doubts. Father, correct some misunderstandings that maybe we've been zealous to believe and even to teach others. Lord, we need you. I more than anyone. So come and use me this morning. I confess my sin. I confess my unworthiness even to be up here this morning, and yet I thank you for the grace that you extend, the reality that you've come for sinners, even calling sinners into your service. 
Father, because we are sanctified by your Son, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. May you be the boast of this sermon. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the NFL season of 2016-2017... Um, the Philadelphia Eagles came in dead last. There we go. We got one Eagles fan out there. I knew, Nate, you would love this uh, illustration. Uh, we got one Philly in the house. Um, 2016-2017, dead last in their division. 2017-2018, the Philadelphia Eagles not only went to the Super Bowl, but won the Super Bowl. From dead last... To winning the Super Bowl. How in the world did it happen? Well, we got a glimpse, kind of a window into why, after the game, when Doug Peterson stood in the midst of the locker room holding the Vince Lombardi trophy up, and he yelled, individuals can make a difference. And his team in unison screamed, but teams can make a miracle. And as I thought about that, I thought, that is the church. Dear friends, we need to hear this message this morning because the church is not about individual playmakers. But the church is about the team. The church is about we. The church is about what we are to be and how we, being a team, radically sacrificing for God and others, can show the world the power of the gospel simply by being the church. That's the whole point. Ephesians 4, Paul says, From Him the whole body, get this picture, body joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This this interconnected body, In our passage this morning, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Friends, God is doing something this morning. God is doing something through His church. Jesus said to Peter, who writes this book, who writes these words. He said to Peter, do you remember it? When when Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what did Jesus say? Ah, I tell you, Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not stand against it. I will build my church. God is active in this world. And we see that, that we have a picture of what the church is to be, even in Acts chapter 4. We read all the believers were one in mind and heart. And I love this modern translation. Selfishness was not a part of their community. For they shared everything they had with one another. And yet, dear friends, compare that to where we are today. 30% of millennials say that the church has absolutely no importance Another 30% of millennials say the church is important, and yet 40% are somewhere in the middle. So 70% are somewhat ambiguous or hostile to the church and to this message that's being preached this morning. And yet, millennials didn't get there in a vacuum. They got there the way every generation gets where they are. They got there because they were shaped and formed 
And they are reacting to, in many ways, to something else, namely their parents, the boomers. And yet we can't just stop there. We can't just say, well, our parents got it wrong and so, because that happens in every generation. We see it in in 1 Peter 1. Listen to this. Peter says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus, of Christ. Do you see it? What Peter says is, man, your parents got it really wrong. They blew it, so therefore, just give up on Jesus. No. He said, your forefathers got it wrong. But it's not because of an insufficiency in Christ. It's because of an insufficiency in them not to follow Christ. And so the younger generation, you millennials, you younger, you cannot just say, well, my parents, you know, they just had this dead religion and I'm, you know. But you've got to look and you've got to say, what is my responsibility to Jesus? Because the deficiency is not in Jesus, it's in his people. Dear friends, Jesus has not given up on his church. I love the book of Revelations. I don't understand a lot of it, if not most of it, but I love it because it shows us the end from the beginning. And, and, and God shows us in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, how it all ends and the church wins. God wins. Because the church is presented as a bride to Christ. That's how this all ends. The church wins because God manifests Himself in the midst of His people. And He has His followers. And at the end of the time, we will be presented to Christ. But what are we to be here and now? Peter tells us. He gives us a window into what we are as a church the opposition that we face and how we should face it as a church, and then the power to face the opposition that we're going to face. So first of all, Paul provides a word picture of what God is doing with this church. We just need to think basically, what is the church? What is it? And Peter uses this metaphor, this illustration of a spiritual house, but he's being consistent with Paul and others who use other metaphors, very strong metaphors. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 12, Now you are the body of Christ, individually members of it. You see, Paul wants you to get that picture in your head. You are the body of Christ. And he even fleshes it out later in that chapter. He says, if the foot should say to the, um, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would uh, not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts and yet one body. This is the metaphor throughout Scripture of all these individual parts and yet working as a cohesive body. Dear friends, you don't just come to church to be the church. You have to be the church to be the church. There has to be some movement. There has to be some devotion. There has to be a complete um, um, rearranging of our perception of what the church is. We are the body 
And in our passage this morning, we are a spiritual house. As you come to Him, the living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, how many of us came this morning to do that? How many of us came here this morning thinking about being the church? The point the Bible makes is consistent. We are intricately connected. And yet, we all must admit that we don't come to the church and we don't come to church to worship, to be the church. I I want us to think about this. I mean, God is doing something, but are we really part of it? And... What is this role and what is the challenge that God has before him? I believe that most of us in this room are coming for different reasons. We're not just diverse racially. We're not just diverse socioeconomically. We are diverse in so many ways because every single individual in this place has a different story. You have a different past. Therefore, you're interpreting things differently. And that's why we need you. That's why we all need one another. Because we are all individually unique. And God is taking that uniqueness and building something. Now, this illustration was going to be extremely more powerful. Have you ever ordered, looked at something on Amazon and the picture was like so much bigger I mean, I had, I was ordering blocks that were going to be like this big. There you have it. Uh, so you, you got to use your imagination this morning. Imagine like, you know, blocks that big. Man, that would have been powerful. There would have been somebody's mind changed this morning. Some hearts would have been changed with large Jenga blocks. I don't know who these are for. I think three-year-olds. Uh, which is probably appropriate. Um, think about this. Why did you come here this morning? Some of you are here this morning because we're a multi-ethnic church. Some of you are here this morning because we are a multi-socioeconomic church. Some of you are here this morning because you heard we are an EPC church. Most of you have no idea what that even means or what I just said. Some come because of the music Some can't stand the music, thinks it's too loud. Some of you are enduring the music to wait for the preaching. Some of you can't stand the preaching, but you're here because of the music. Some of you are here because you're forced to by your parents. Therefore, church is not something you're choosing. Church is something that is happening to you, not something you're participating in. Some of you come every six to seven weeks and call this your church home. Some of you hate to miss one week. Some come because um, maybe you're single and you're looking for friendship, maybe even a date. Some come are African American and young. Some come are white and young. 
Some come and you're single parents. It's hard for you to get here. You feel out of place. You're not sure where your place is among all the married people. Some of you are married. Some of you are soon to be married. Yeah. Tell I wasn't in construction. Some of us think that when we come here, we're doing African-American worship. Some of you, mostly African-Americans, are thinking you got to go to your home church every now and then to get African-American worship. Some are reformed. Some have no clue what that means. Some are empty nesters. Some want to be empty nesters. Some are Democrats. Some are Republican. Some are moderates. Some have given up. Some see themselves as pro-police. Some see themselves as needing and wanting justice reform. Some want to see jails stopped altogether. They see it as modern-day slavery. Some want more jails built. Some are looking to serve. Some are just dropping in. Some of us feel like we can't connect with anybody else because we are different. Some are trying to fit this church and fit these messages into a conservative side or a liberal side. Some are trying to figure out they're they're coming from either a cogent background or a Catholic background or an Episcopal background or a Baptist background or a Methodist background or no church background. Some are Hispanic, uh, Latino, some are African American, some are white, some are elderly, some are young, some live on the street, some live in really nice homes. Some are poor. Some have layers of wealth. And we can go on and on and on. Some were abused as children. Some were neglected. Some were raised in single-family homes. Some were raised in the north. Some in the south. Some went to college. Some can't read. Do you understand? I mean, this is what God has to work with. And this is the challenge. And this is why God must be building His church. And if He doesn't, the gates of hell will prevail. Why? Because it's impossible. Because He didn't just say, come to church. He said, be the church. And for us to be the church demands radical transformation from the inside out. But it is transformation toward what we were created to be. You see, God has created this because He is community. He can't be for individualistic society. Why? Because He exists in community. He exists Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, yet one God. So close, so in in, in sync with one another that they are literally one. We don't know how other than God is love. And it's that Trinitarian deal. Now we're getting really deep, but it's really, it's deep, but it's so practical. Everything goes back to the Trinity. The church goes directly back to the Trinity. 
You see, friends, we can't know God. We can't know ourselves. We are like a ship without a rudder without the church. Why? Because we're created in a God who, in the image of a God who is the church. He is community. He is love. He is self-sacrificing love. C.S. Lewis points this out so brilliantly in his uh, little book, The Four Loves. He talks about his relationship with two of his friends, longtime friends, Ronald and Charles. And Charles dies, okay? So C.S. Lewis's friend, Charles, dies. And this is what C.S. Lewis wrote. In each of my friends, there is something that, that only some other friend can fully bring out. That's good. By myself, I'm not large enough to call any person completely into activity. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, Ronald's the one that's alive, far from having him to myself now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. You see it? He's learning about Charles and Ronald by how they interact, and he's in relationship with them. In this friendship, in this, friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance of heaven itself, where the multitude of the blessed, which no one can number, increase the fruition with which, uh, with each has of God, for every soul in heaven seeing him in his own way, communicating that unique vision to all the rest. Do you see it? Heaven is glorifying God, but from their own perspective. And so we're learning more about God as we, as we ex- experience the wholeness of worship in heaven. And it's endless. This is why the seraphim are crying, holy, holy, holy to one another. Dear friends, it takes a community to know an individual. We experience this all the time. I meet people that have have met my wife as an artist and know her as an artist and they know a completely different side and they tell me things that I haven't even thought. Then I meet some of her tennis friends over here and they know a completely other side and they talk to me and yet I've learned about her through her mother hearing stories of when she was young. I can't know my wife alone. I have to have a community. And it's the same way with God. You cannot know God in your closet. You can experience Him, but you can't fully know Him. The only way to know Him is to experience Him and how He has revealed Himself in the specific circumstances of each person's life, in the midst of each person's story. As we come to His Word, yes, united through His Word, but His Word working in us individually, that's how we know God better. That is the beauty and the absolute necessity of diversity in every way. That's why we can't just be a 20-something church or an 80-something church. It's why we can't just be a white church or a black church. It's why... Do you see it? Because all of us have different perspectives and we have neglected the knowledge of God and we have become not better but worse in our segregation. Do you see that? And to the extent that you push against that is to the extent that you're not understanding God. Oh, my wife and I can't tell you how many times we've told, you know, old friends, they'll ask us, well, what's going on in Memphis? We see this thing you're doing. And they're kind of like, we don't understand. What happened to you, Richard? What, what is this? What are you doing now? And I say, my life has changed. I've learned, I, I, I've told you this a hundred times. I thought I was coming to, to really educate. 
And I have come and I've been transformed. I'm worshiping in ways I've never even thought possible. I've learned so much from so many of you. And that's how it's designed to work. You see, this hall, this, this holy priesthood, this chosen race offering spiritual sacrifices, this is a house, it's not a wall. It's not keeping people out, it's a house. And who dwells in the house? God Himself. This is like the temple, but it's a spiritual house, remember? And this is like a temple because God dwells among His people. That's what He said. Where two or three are together, there I am in their midst. Where my disciples are, there I am. So God is dwelling right here in our community. And we're experiencing Him. We're experiencing through each other. We're experiencing as we're being led in worship. And dear friends, we are not just here by accident. C.S. Lewis goes on to say this. In friendship, we think we've chosen our peers. In reality, a few years difference in the dates of our births. A few more miles between certain homes. The choice of one university instead of another. The accident of a topic being raised or not raised at a first meeting. Any of these chances might have kept us apart. But for a Christian, there are, strictly speaking, no chances. A secret master of ceremonies has been at work. Christ, who said to the disciples, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you can truly say to every group of Christian friends, ye have not chosen one another, but I have chosen you for one another. Oh, that's so good. The friendship is not a reward for our discriminating and good taste in finding one another out. It's the instrument by which God reveals to each of us the beauties of others. Dear friends, I'm convinced that so many of us are holding back because this is different. I can't describe this. I can't describe us. I don't, I don't, we are so different. And yet many of us are holding back because it is so different. When God is saying, jump full, long in. Trust me, you didn't just happen upon downtown church. That friend didn't just invite you and you said, oh, i got nothing better to do. You are here for a reason because there is a master of ceremonies. You might not understand it. And, and listen to me. You might get hurt. No, you will get hurt. You will be offended. You will feel the victim of racism in our body. Because we don't know how, we don't know how to do this. We don't know how to interact. We will feel like we will be accused of things. And there may be truth to it or not. But that's the body of Christ. And Christ says, quit holding back. Trust me, I have you here for a purpose. That's the church. But then secondly, there's a deep tension between what's happening here, the church, and what... Uh, what and. and let me just read it. There's a deep tension the Bible calls us to live between the church and the world. So we've got the job of, of being the church. I mean, that's hard enough. But as we are the church, we're going to have opposition from the world. We've got to work on this a little bit. Um, Peter points to it. He, he refers to Jesus as being a living stone rejected by men. And then the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. 
which means we, as disciples and followers of Jesus, he refers to us at, later in verse 11 as sojourners or, foreign, or uh, foreigners, strangers, aliens, exiles, pilgrims, or temporary residents. And, and what Peter is telling us is that we, this group that's neither Republican nor Democrat nor, um, you know, majority this or majority that, that seems liberal, but we are going to be rejected by the world if we are a we. To live as a foreigner is to know this is not your home. And yet to live as a resident, a a temporary resident, means you are a resident here, even though this is not your home. So we are to be in the world, but not of the world. And yet the church has said, no, we're going to be apart from the world, and we're going to tell the world how bad it is and what it should be. We, we have missed our mission in the world, and I'm going to kind of get a, at a roundabout way to that. Um, Josh Shelley sent me an article this week by a guy by the name of um, Samuel James who wrote an article in the National Review called We Are All Fundamentalists Now. It's a brilliant article. And, and what James is, is proposing is that, you know, fundamental, Christian fundamentalism over here defined kind of what was moral, the moral majority. We are the moral people in this country, and we're going to tell you how to be moral. And we're going to do that by seeking power so that we can have authority over you, so that we can change the laws, so that we can force you into the behavior that is God-pleasing. So that we can become a Christian country, so that we can become on top and you can be on bottom. It's Christian fundamentalism. And what James is saying is that now the world, as opposed to just being relativist, follow me, please follow me, of just saying, oh, it doesn't matter what you believe, they're now defining what absolute truth is. What is absolute truth in our culture now? What can you absolutely not be against? LGBTQ, um, women's rights. You cannot be against these or you will be shamed. An example of that, Ellen Page, the Juno and Inception star. She was amazing in Juno. I didn't realize she was in Inception, but um, really good <laughs> actress. Um, Called out Chris Pratt, who's a Christian, going to, um, ah, what's the name of that church? Uh, uh, Hillsong. Um, I think in L.A. They have one in New York, too. Um, and she tweeted this about Chris Pratt. She said, if you're a famous actor and you belong to an organization that hates a certain group of people, don't be surprised if someone simply wonders why it's not addressed. Being anti-LGBTQ is wrong. There aren't two sides. See, absolute. This is put abortion in there with Christian fundamentalism. This is how we've talked to the world. Now this is how the world's talking to us. The damage. Um, there aren't two sides. The damage it causes is severe. Full stop. And then she ends sending love to all. So anyway. James writes this, Not only has relativism failed to conquer our cultural landscape, it's been routed by something close to its opposite, 
a rigid moral absolutism that launches business boycotts and Twitter shame storms as efficiently as any fundamentalism out there. And that's the culture now. And in a way, we deserve that culture because we mastered it. The fundamentalist church mastered it. And they did business in the world in a way that did not win the world. Now, we can learn how to be the church in the world, and the world's still going to hate us. But they're going to hate us for the right reason. And they're actually going to have a love-hate relationship with us. What do you mean, Richard? This is what I mean. Peter says this in verses 11 through 12. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Foreigners, aliens, and yet temporary residents. The early church got a big portion of this right, and many of them died. But at least they died for the right reason. They didn't, they weren't being, anyway. So here are nine things the early church stood out for, in in Rome especially. They didn't go to gladiatorial games, thus they were viewed as antisocial. They were prudes, they didn't go, they didn't want to go watch people get eaten by lines. You bunch of narrow-minded, prudish people. Two, they did not serve in the military to support Caesar's wars of conquest. Oh, they were pacifists. Bunch of liberals. They didn't support abortion and infanticide. Oh, they're conservatives, you bunch of lunatic conservatives. They empowered women and used women in leadership in ways that was not common in society. Oh, they're liberal again. They were against sex outside of marriage. Oh, they're conservative again. They were against same-sex practice. They were radically for the poor and gave much more than the Romans did. They're bleeding-heart liberals. They mixed races and classes together in ways that seemed scandalous to the world. They presented Jesus as the only way of salvation. They were liberal and conservative. Resident aliens. How do we impact the world? When I ask that question, we typically think individually. Well, it's by sharing my faith with my neighbor and seeing them come to Christ. Absolutely. But how do we live in the world when all the opinions, political and social, are storming around us and being launched? What do you believe? What side are you on? You see, the church has a higher commitment uh, we said it this morning uh, in the song where where um, we said that you know Jesus will Jesus will He will do what He will make our decisions for us, Amen. You see, Jesus will as we come under Him and say, "You tell us how to think and how to live." I'm going to a conference in June, and the conference is 
addressing homosexuality, LGBTQ, um, primarily homosexuality in the church. It's a conference that has and holds a historic orthodox view of sexuality, which I do as well. But it says that the church has failed miserably, miserably in loving its neighbor and those among us who struggle with homosexuality. I am absolutely, well, I'm not going to say that. To even tell you that this morning could be a bomb (laughs) in the midst of this congregation. Because there are many who are going to say, it's a sin, outcast, they're the lepers, let's build a special camp. And nobody's going to actually say that, but... And some over here are going to say, Richard, obviously, you know, I'm not going to be against anybody. We shouldn't be against anybody. Right. And yet the scriptures are clear. In terms of sexuality and in terms of we are to love our neighbor as our self. And so here we are. How are we going to walk through this? You see, here's the deal. The church and the, the fundamentalist church says, it's a sin, they're outcasts, conversion therapy, all this, you know, boom, boom, boom. And that's one camp that is never going to be persecuted. And then you have on this side, well, you can take the scriptures and they just, this, that was their specific cultural context. And, you know, if you look at the heart of God, I mean, God loves all people and therefore it's not a sin. There is no sin. And yet to say it's a sin and we are to love radically is going to bring persecution. <laughs> And yet, respect. Because that's how, when we are the church, that's how it works. Nobody, I mean, you're just over here in your camp, protected by your walls, if you're saying it's a sin, have nothing to do with these people. There's no persecution over here. In fact, today, you're really lauded uh, for being open-minded and progressive if, if you're here. And yet here, some in that camp are going to say, we agree with your orthodox view of sexuality. Some in this camp are going to say, we agree with your view of loving and not boycotting and not being jerks, but genuinely being humble and treating people like images, fellow images of God, fellow sinners redeemed by grace. And so this will be the tension within which we live. And so we have no real political party and we have no real power to protect us. Now you see how persecution happens. And the only hope we have is the deliverance of God himself. And so that takes us to the point, if this is the position that we're in... How in the world do we thrive and flourish in the, in the midst of it?
Number three, the power to live like this is to understand that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. To understand that we have been redeemed by what Peter calls the precious blood of Jesus. He didn't just say blood. He said the precious blood. Why is it so precious? Did you hear the words that we sang earlier? Did you hear the the hymn that we sang? Trying to pull it up. I may or may not. Talking about the wrath of God and how Jesus paid for all of our sin. That our sin was paid for because of Him. You see, the way to not be arrogant is to understand that Richard Reeves deserves hell more than anybody he's going to meet today. More than anybody who disagrees with me about sexuality. More than anybody that disagrees with me about any, more than anybody I meet today, I know I, there is a there is a deep place in hell for Richard Reeves, but Christ, but Christ, He is my only boast. The fact I'm a minister that doesn't get me deeper, higher up into heaven. The fact that I He is my only, but He's my only grounds upon which I stand. He is the cornerstone. That's what Peter refers to him. What is a cornerstone? A cornerstone is the first stone set in the construction of a masonry foundation. Important since all the other stones will be set in reference to this stone. Thus determining the position of the entire structure. Do you see it? My whole life is oriented toward him. So whatever is going on around me in my life, my cornerstone is my foundation. The reality of what he tells me, not what the mirror is telling me, not what the detractors are telling me, not what the blogs are telling me, not what the tweets are telling me, what he's telling me. The way that I'm going to make Jesus, his love, my foundation, my cornerstone is I'm going to trust that he knows me perfectly and he lived under the law in my place to present me as righteous. And he went to the cross and was crucified, was judged with the eternal damnation of hell upon him that I might, my sins might be atoned for. So that simply through faith, which he gives me, by the way, I receive perfect acceptance and love of God. And right now, I am simultaneously messed up and loved by God because of Christ. Do you get that? Simultaneously. That is the power of the gospel. That's why I can do community with whoever I come in contact with. Because I'm not going to meet anybody worse than me. And I'm no better. And I can preach a Christ. And so, a sufficient Christ, a cornerstone. That's what Paul was getting at. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Everything. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And that word rubbish really means dung, crap. You just keep going with it. I count them as what we find in the outhouse, what we find in the toilet. That's what he's saying. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and I might share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. 
The only way to do that is to come to Him. That's what verse 4 says. As we come to Him as living stones, He is building us up into the spiritual house offering spiritual sacrifices. Dear friends, how do we become, in all our diversity, in all of our insecurity, with all the people out there that feel disjointed, that feel out of place, that feel... How do we become this? It's by declaring that we are sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and yet all are justified freely by His grace. That's the only way that we can meet in the middle and we can say, Jesus, tell us where to go. Tell us how to go. Lead us. Dear friends, is that where you are this morning? Is Jesus your only boast? If it is, you can endure diverse community. You can endure whatever offense you get in this place. Because you know that God is at work. God is building a spiritual house that His glory might be lifted high. That the world might know there's a community out there full of love and yet full of truth. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank You. Thank You for the hope that we have in You. Lord Jesus, thank You that You are building a spiritual house this morning. Oh God, I pray that You would take this sermon and may it go to that end. Lord, You must pour out Your Spirit. You must pour out Your conviction. Father, we see each other's sins. We see each other's offenses. But it's so hard to see our own. I pray that You would bring humility. I pray that You would bring the power of the Gospel that we might love each other. In response to Your great love for us, I pray that we would get... That you would get us over us. That God, we would not want to build a house. We would not want downtown church to become the place that we want it to be. But we would want it to become a place that you want it to be. That Father, you would take us from being consumers. And you would make us radical servants. Loving servants. Forgiving servants. Father, loving our neighbors ourselves. Oh God, would you make it be. Would you make it be so. Lord Jesus, be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.